Welcome to the Mark Driscoll Ministries podcast. To find more Bible teaching from Pastor Mark, visit markdriscoll.org. Thank you for listening and being a part of Mark Driscoll Ministries. And remember, it's all about Jesus. All right, if you've got your Bibles, go to John chapter 11. We're taking the better part of a year. We're looking at the Gospel of John, and it's written by one of Jesus' nearest and dearest friends. He was there for Jesus' life and ministry, so he's an eyewitness account, incredibly uh, trustworthy with his record and reporting. And we're just on the other side of halfway through the book, and uh, the first half of the book covers about three years of Jesus' life and ministry. The second roughly half of the book covers about a week or so of Jesus' life and ministry. And John is a great storyteller. And if this was a film, this would be where the camera pans in and where the scenes slow down and the dialogue is more focused. And it's just honing all of our attention and energy toward the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus, which is the focal point of the entire story. And before we pick it up today, I wanna remind you of kind of what's happened in chapter 10 and 11. Maybe you were with us, maybe you weren't. In chapter 10, things really hit a pitched, heated point where those who were opposed to Jesus, his critics and enemies, they came to him publicly and they demanded him to just go on record. And they asked him, tell us, are you the Christ or not? Are you God or not? Bottom line, right? Everybody's here. We all wanna know, are you God? And Jesus declared openly, publicly, and clearly, yes, I am God. And then they responded in John chapter 10, verse 33, saying, we are going to stone you for blasphemy because you, being a man, make yourself to be God. So Jesus says he's God. Chapter 11, he then says that he forgives sin and alone gives eternal life. He says it this way in John 11, 25 and 26, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he will live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? So Jesus says, chapter 10, I'm God. Chapter 11, I forgive sin. And if you believe in me, you get your sin forgiven. You get to rise from death. You get to go to heaven to be with me forever. To prove his words and his works in John 11, we looked at last week, he goes to the graveside of one of his nearest and dearest friends, a guy named Lazarus, who's very dead, been dead for four days, and says, Lazarus, come forth, and raises Lazarus from death. So where we're at here, for every action, there's a reaction. Jesus says he's God, Jesus shows he's God, and then there are responses to what Jesus says and does. And in this, I want you to think about yourself and what your response to Jesus is today. And the first uh, response is that some people hate Jesus. There's haters, there's lovers and users. The first is the haters. So we pick up the story in John 11, starting in verse 45. Many of the Jewish people, therefore, who had come with Mary, Mary is uh, Lazarus's sister. Lazarus is a guy who loves Jesus. He's got two sisters, Mary and Martha. Jesus is close friends with his family. He will stop by their house, eat with them, stay with them when he's traveling and doing ministry. He'd come with Mary and seen what he did, believed in him. So after Jesus says he's God, and then after he rises Lazarus from death, his approval picks up. They're like, this is the guy who forgives sin and raises the dead. We're on team Jesus. So his popularity is, is soaring, but... Some of them went to the Pharisees. These are a small number of very powerful, very conservative religious leaders. They hold a lot of power and they told him what Jesus had done. They're tattling on Jesus. This is amazing. 
He raises a dead guy. And some of the people are like, we need to go tell the subcommittee what Jesus has done. So they go tattle on Jesus. Jesus raised the dead. Did he have permission? Did he have a permit? You know, next thing you know, the city council's involved, you know, and they're gonna send out a guy with a clipboard and, and they're inspecting and investigating Jesus. So the chief priests, religious leader, and the Pharisees gathered the council. This is the Sanhedrin. It's a governing body of 70 men, none of whom are any fun or have a sense of humor. Okay, that's just one of the qualifications to be in a religious group like that. They have no sense of humor. They're no fun. Jesus rises people and instead of throwing parties, they get upset about resurrections. I don't know about you, if dead people are alive, I feel like we should make a cake, not a committee, amen? Just throwing it out there, something to pray about. And so the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. Jesus is feeding people. Jesus is healing people. Jesus is raising people. The religious leaders aren't doing anything. They're criticizing the one who's doing things. This goes to show there's two kinds of people, people who do things and people who criticize people who do things. Jesus is helping people and they're criticizing him. They're not helping others. That's their problem. This man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, if this continues, right? And he's, he's turned water into wine. He's went water skiing without a boat. He's healed somebody. He's brought somebody back from death. His resume is unbelievable. Their fear is the Romans will come and take away our place and our nation. So you have God's people, the Jewish people, they're being ruled over by the Roman government. And they are not to cause too much trouble because if they do, the Roman government will get involved and will outlaw their religion. So what they're saying is Jesus is getting so popular, people are saying Jesus is Lord and the government wants us to say that Caesar is Lord. And, and people are saying that they're devoted to Jesus more than they are to Caesar. If this revolution of Jesus continues, there will be a response from the Romans. We're finding ourselves in a precarious situation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was the high priest, he's the senior leader, he's the guy with the big hat, he's on the top of the org chart, he's got the big corner desk and office. Uh, he said to them, you know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He looks at it and here's his assessment of the situation. There's Jesus and the whole nation and if Jesus continues, then the whole nation is going to suffer. So let's have Jesus suffer and that'll spare the whole nation. He doesn't understand that this is ultimately God's plan. And so we read in the next section, he did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied. Sometimes somebody who doesn't even love God says something that's true. How many of you have heard something from somebody like, that was awesome, amazing. You don't know God. You have no idea what you're talking about, but bazinga, that was mail from Jesus. Thank you very much. That's what's happening here. He says something and it is from God, even though he doesn't love God, God is going to use this man and his decision-making for God's ultimate purposes. He prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation and not for the nation only, but also to gather in the children of God who are scattered abroad. So at this point, they're in the Middle East and here we are in Scottsdale, Arizona, 2000 years later, how did all that happen? It was promised right there. Jesus would die for the sins of people and the good news of Jesus would go out to all of the nations because every nation ultimately needs to surrender to his kingdom. Now, from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. They're gonna kill God. God comes to the earth 
and we plot to kill him. That just reveals how sinful human nature and condition is. Jesus therefore no longer walked openly among the Jews. So he kind of goes into the witness protection program. Jesus kind of is having to watch where he goes. I hope this has not been your experience, but if it has, um, you know what it's like. Let's say you've got a stalker. Like, I gotta watch where I go. I don't, I don't know if I'm safe. Somebody puts out a threat against you or your family. All of a sudden, now you need to be a little more private and a little more guarded. That's Jesus' circumstance. He knows that his time to die is coming and it's not yet here, though it is days away. And so he's needing to safeguard his security. He can't go out in public. Isn't it amazing that the religious leaders seek to kill God? I just, this is staggering. Okay, you can be moral, you can be religious, you could be spiritual and still not know God. They're moral, they're spiritual, they're religious. God shows up and they hate him and they want to kill him. Okay? Our goal is not to make you moral, spiritual or religious to introduce you to Jesus and he'll make you into the person that you're supposed to be. And ultimately that's a person that loves him and is like him. They don't understand this. Jesus therefore no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim and there he stayed with his disciples. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand. The Passover is when they would take a lamb without spot or blemish. They would sacrifice it as a substitute for sinners because sin requires death as its penalty. And, uh, and Jesus shows up and it is the season of Passover and he is going to lay down his life to fulfill the ultimate meaning of Passover. And just a, a little caveat and aside, uh, John in his gospel mentions three Passovers. This is the third one. And Jesus is right on the precipice of dying. This is why we know that Jesus' public ministry lasted roughly three years because he celebrated three Passovers. Um, and it says that they went to the temple uh, to purify themselves. Isn't that amazing? Why are you here? We're here to become clean in the sight of God. How will you do that? By murdering God. It's amazing that some people think that they're clean when they're dirty. It's amazing that some people think that they're right when they're wrong. And they're opposing God in the name of being godly. Very confused. Um, they were looking to Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, which is supposed to be the place where God's people dwell in God's presence. What do you think? That he will not come to the feast at all? Is Jesus even gonna show himself? Is he gonna hide? At this point, they got a bounty on Jesus' head, right? They've got a wanted poster hanging up at the Hebrew post office with his picture on it. Now the chief priests and the Pharisees, these are the religious leaders had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. They've now got a bounty out. If you see Jesus, give us a call. And if he's arrested, you'll get a ransom. You'll get a price. In this, I want you to see that some people hate Christ. Why do they hate Christ? I would say there are two primary reasons. He shows up and they disagree. And what Jesus Christ tells them is, you are not the highest authority in your life. I am. That's offensive. And then he says, there are some beliefs and behaviors of yours that are wrong and you need to change. And they say, no, we are the highest authority and you are wrong and we are right. This still happens today. Christianity is truthful and it is also offensive. And in our culture, there are some people just overtly hate Jesus Christ. They hate the revelation of the Bible and whatever would tell us about Jesus. But there is a more subtle rejection of Jesus where some people will say, tell me if you've heard this, 
I like Christ, I just don't like Christianity. Okay? Well, why do you not like Christianity? Because they say that Christ is the authority and I need to change. Well, that's what Christ said. We're just echoing what Christ said. Now, to be sure, there are times that people don't like Christians because we say and do offensive things. I got a minor in this in college and I'm very good at it. And so I'm well aware of this possibility, amen? But sometimes the problem is a person wants to be the highest authority in their life and Jesus should be the highest authority in their life. And they want Jesus to tell them that there's nothing wrong with them. And Jesus tells them that there is something wrong with them and they need to change. This is where the conflict comes in with Christ and it comes in with Christianity. We'll use language as Christians like sin and repentance, but that's ultimately what is being revealed here in this account. So how about you? Who's the highest authority in your life? And if Jesus says that your beliefs or behaviors are wrong, are you willing to change them or are you wanting to fight him? If so, you end up like these religious people who are arguing and fighting with Jesus and ultimately they want to put him to death to show that they are the highest authority, that they are right, that he is wrong. This is where Christianity requires humility. I'm not the highest authority and sometimes I'm wrong and I need to change. Jesus is the highest authority and there's nothing that he needs to change. He is perfect, I am not. He is right, I am wrong. If we disagree, rock, paper, scissors, Jesus wins, amen? That's Christianity. Two things I wanna hit here in brief. Um, these are attributes of God. Uh, when we speak of someone, sometimes it's good to list their attributes. So if you've never met my wife, Grace, I'd say, tell me about Grace. I'd, I'd, I'd tell you some attributes of hers. So it is with God. Well, what's God like? Well, we'll tell some attributes of God. The, the one that we see here firstly is love. It's love. And how do we know that God loves us? It's because Jesus substitutes himself for us. Uh, again, the high priest prophesies this. He says, it is better that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. So Jesus is going to die for the people. That would be you and I and for them. This is the concept of substitution. This is at the heart of Christianity. That you and I have sinned against God and the wage, the penalty, the debt to be paid is death. And Jesus comes and he substitutes himself. He dies that we might live. And he is the one who secures for us forgiveness of sin in relationship with God. And if you're new and you don't know Jesus, this is why we love Jesus so much. How many of you have someone that loves you so much that they would die for you? Jesus loved you so much that he died for you. Um, I was thinking about it this morning. Have you been tracking that story on the news where there's a bunch of boys, soccer players trapped in a cave? And, and the whole world is watching and praying and we all want those boys and their coach to get out, to go home, to be safe and okay. But they find themselves in a situation where they cannot rescue themselves. They've gotten themselves into a situation that they cannot get themselves out of. So what do they need? They need a savior, they need a rescuer, they need a deliverer. They need somebody else to look at this complicated situation that they've gotten themselves into and to devise a plan to enter into that precarious situation to risk their own life to rescue them from death. We call these people heroes, amen? If this is a police officer who steps in harm's way to protect an innocent, Person, if this is a soldier who takes a bullet so that you and I can have freedom, 
If a building is on fire and the firefighter runs toward the fire, we say, those are heroes. The Bible uses the language of savior. The one who risks their own life so that you could have life. His name is Jesus. And how do we know that God loves us? Because Jesus gets off his throne and he runs right into the crisis that we have created and he dies that we might live. He puts himself in harm's way so we could have a relationship with God that never ends. And this is how the Bible connects the cross of Jesus, the substitution of Jesus with the love of God. For God so loved the world, we read in John 3, that he gave his only son. Romans 5 says that God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Uh, John tells us in a, a letter that he wrote, um, it is not that we have loved God, but that God has loved us and has sent Jesus to be the propitiation, to be the sacrifice for our sins. When you understand that Jesus lived the life that you've not lived and he died the death that you should die to give you the gift that you cannot earn, what you respond with should be, Jesus, you love me and I love you and you rescue me and I wanna be with you. And Jesus, you got me out of the mess that I got myself into. No one else could have got me out of this mess and you brought life into my death. You brought forgiveness into my guilt, amen? And so it's the love of God we see with the ministry of Jesus. The other thing we see here, the second attribute of God is God's sovereignty. Okay, let me, if you don't understand this, this is something that Christians debate about all the time. Right now, every Bible college in America has a bunch of guys arguing this very same thing, okay? This is what Christians do in our free time. We argue this issue over and over and over. And the issue is this, do human beings make their own choices or is God in control? The answer is, Yes, okay, there you go. You're like, I disagree. Well then let the carnival music fire up and we'll just do round umpteenth million, okay? Now let me ask you this, in this story where these people are making their decisions, are they deciding we're not listening to Jesus, we're not loving Jesus, we're not following Jesus, we're gonna attack Jesus, we're gonna falsely accuse Jesus, we're gonna arrest Jesus, we're gonna murder Jesus. Are they, of their own decision-making, are they making those choices, yes or no? Yeah. And is God still in control? Yes. So right after this book of John, the next book of the Bible is Acts. And reflecting back on this moment, there is a man named Peter and he preaches a sermon. And he's reflecting back on this moment. He says this in Acts chapter two, verse 23, Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge God knows in advance of God you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Here's what he says. The people, you decided to murder Jesus. You decided to murder Jesus and God knew you were gonna murder Jesus and he had a definite plan to use what was evil and to use it for good. Here's what I need you to know. People make decisions, but God makes the last decision. And I wanna give you an analogy of how this works. Um, there was a preacher some years ago, he used an analogy that I'll borrow. Uh, he gave the uh, concept of a big ship. So how many of you have or will soon be in or near San Diego? You all raise your hands. I went to San Diego, every license plate says Arizona. I don't know why. Uh, everyone's like, we're gone, right? It's Because when June, July, August, I always say that's the beast, the false prophet, and the antichrist, the unleash hell on earth. And, it, and you can't even preach a sermon series on hell. This time of year in the valley, people are like, you cannot scare me. I'd, hot does not bother me, I, you know. So, 
but what happens is if you go to San Diego, you will see a lot of ships, some of them military, some of them cruise ships. Um, let's use a cruise ship as an analogy. Everybody gets on the ship. People make a lot of decisions on the ship, right? But who ultimately controls the destination or the destiny of the ship? The captain. The question is, well, are people making their own decisions on the ship? Absolutely, and they're responsible for them, but they're all on the captain's ship. And the captain will ultimately determine where all the passengers go because he has the overarching, overriding decision. Human history is like that. Caiaphas is responsible, Judas, as you will see, responsible, religious leaders responsible, worshipers of Jesus responsible, but ultimately they're all on the captain's ship. And he ultimately will take it toward its intended destination or destiny because the captain ultimately is the one who controls where all of the passengers go. Does that make sense? Here's what, why do I give this to you as encouragement? Right now on the earth, are people doing some horrible things? Yes. Have you and I made some decisions in our life that are painful and foolish and regrettable? Yes. And the question is, well, what will happen? The captain will get us all to port because the captain is sovereign and he's good, okay? That's the sovereignty of God. The captain is sovereign and good and everybody makes their decision, but don't worry, he still is at the helm. We see this in this moment because at this moment, it looks very dark. The religious leaders are against Jesus. There's a bounty on him. There's a warrant for him. There is an assassination plot against him. It all looks very dark. But ultimately, God had a definite plan to take what was intended for evil, used for good in the saving of many lives because God works out all things for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. You can always trust the captain. Even when there's mutiny on the ship, you could still trust the captain. Some people hate Jesus. Some people hate Christianity. Do you? If you do, I want you to examine your heart and ask why. Why do I hate Christ? Why do I hate Christianity? Why do I reject authority? Why do I believe that God is the one that needs to change rather than assuming that I'm the one that needs to change. It's not too late for you. There's always hope for you as long as there is breath in your lungs. The second response is some people love Jesus. Uh, John 12, six days before the Passover, so Jesus is nearing his death. Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was. Now Lazarus has had a big week. He was dead. The Bible said he stinketh. Right, he got resurrected. It's been a big week for him, big week. Where Lazarus was, who Jesus is raised from the dead. So they threw a party for him, right? I don't know what kind of cake you get for, I mean, I don't know what this is, you know, like I know birthday, resurrection. I don't know what, you know, party favors, kazoo. Hey, welcome back. You know, I mean, I don't, this had to be awesome, right? How many of you, somebody you love died, you buried them, you had the funeral, you go home and then, you open the door, you're like, hey, what are you doing here? Uh, <laughs> you'd have to get a cake for that, amen? Like a really good cake, right? They're having a resurrection party for Lazarus. Can you imagine how awesome this is? Here's what I need you to know. History's a funeral, but it ends with a party after we're all raised from the dead, amen? That party's called heaven. So here they're practicing for that party. They gave a dinner for him there. Martha what? Serve, how many of you are like Martha? I can tell you are, because you're taking notes right now. 
those of you who are Mary, you're, you, you're, you're crying. But you Marthas, you're making, Marthas are people who like to do things. You're active, you're, you're doers, you're, you're people that have to have a list and when you check it off, you feel better. And then you make another list, okay? That's what you do. So how many of you, you're hand sanitizers, do all your laundry, clean your house, alphabetize your fridge, right? Dust your light bulbs, you're that person, right? You got schedule, you got a budget, you got things to do. You're very productive. That's Martha. Does she love Jesus? Yes. How does she love Jesus? By serving, by doing, by doing, by doing. Martha served in Lazarus, was one of those reclining with him at the table. Lazarus doesn't do anything. I wouldn't either. I'd be like, I died this week. I'm taking a few days off, right? I'm, I'm just gonna be over here. I'm gonna sit in the chair with the lever and somebody bring me something with an umbrella because I was dead and I, I'm really processing a lot this week. It's been a tough week for me. I would get up, but I was dead. So I'm in recovery mode now. You're gonna need to take care of that yourself. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment probably from India, made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Now let's, uh, let's unpack the story. There are four gospels about Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Matthew, Mark, and John, three of the four gospels record this party where Jesus is honored for raising Lazarus and he is anointed by Mary. I believe the reason that John gives us the fewest details is because he writes last. And he knows that Matthew and Mark have already covered the story. So he's sort of doing a a quick summation of it. Uh, I'll pull out some details. First, Lazarus loves Jesus and he responds in love to Jesus by just hanging out with him. Martha's doing a lot. Mary's gonna be very emotional. Lazarus just kind of hangs out with Jesus. All three of them love Jesus just in different ways. Some of you, your personalities, your disposition, your temperament and type, is more like Lazarus. Let me ask you this about Lazarus. Does Lazarus ever say anything? No. Some guys are like, I'm like Lazarus. Okay. um, Lazarus, we just had a whole chapter of the Bible on this guy. He doesn't say anything. Some of you ladies are like, my husband doesn't say anything. Lazarus was raised from death and didn't say anything. He's just that guy. How did it go? Mm -hmm. He doesn't say anything. Doesn't say anything. Mary, she's got a lot to say. Martha, she's got a lot to say. Lazarus, he doesn't say anything. But he lets Jesus be the center of attention because everybody's coming to Lazarus. Lazarus, what happened? He'd be like, I was dead and now I'm not. And Jesus did it. And he shifts all the attention to Jesus. He loves Jesus by hanging out with Jesus and then pointing all the attention to Jesus. How about Martha? Well, we covered it briefly. How does she love Jesus? By serving. Some of you are like that. You have to do something. What about Mary? Um, Here's what is interesting. I was thinking about it this week. Mary, let me say this firstly. She's very passionate, but it's not romantic. She's very passionate toward Jesus, but it's not romantic. Some of you are like Mary, you're very passionate. When you're alone in prayer, it's loud and there's crying and it's emotional. Some of you in worship, you will clap, you will sing, you will raise your voice. Others of you are like Lazarus. You're like, 
Mm -hmm. But some of you are like Mary, right? You're very emotional. How many of you are emotional? Just, just raise your hand right now. I know you want to, you just need a break. Okay, whoa, okay, just do this. All you Mary, oh gosh, doesn't that feel good? Oh, free at last. Okay, you feel better now, right? You're more emotional, more passionate. Three times we see Mary in the gospels. First time, Jesus is teaching, where is Mary? At his feet. Second time, Lazarus dies. Jesus shows up. Where is Mary grieving? At his feet. Here, Jesus is at their home for a party. And where is Mary? At the feet of Jesus worshiping. She's at the feet of Jesus learning. She is at the feet of Jesus grieving. She is at the feet of Jesus worshiping. Every time we see Mary, she's at the feet of Jesus. And in the Bible, the New Testament was originally written in Greek, and one of the primary words for worship literally means to kiss the feet. See, when an emperor would come into your presence in that culture, you would bow down in honor to the emperor, and you would humble yourself and kiss their feet. And the Bible uses that word for worship. It's passionate, it's submission, it's surrender, it's emotion that is visible. Some of you are like Lazarus. You love Jesus, you just don't say a lot, but you hang out with him and you point other people to him. Some of you are like Martha. You love Jesus and you serve and get things done. Some of you are like Mary and you're very passionate, you're very emotional, and you're worshipers and prayers. Some of the other gospels give us a little more detail. Here it says that she anointed his feet, wiped it with her hair. Some of the other gospels say that the anointing actually started at Jesus' head and covers his whole body. And I want you to see that this was a very lavish, very extravagant gift. When it says uh, a pound of expensive, the commentators indicate that this would be the equivalent of one year's wages. So 40, 50, let's call it $60,000. She gives a $60,000 gift to Jesus and it's only for that moment. It's not a gift he can take with him and use for the rest of his life. This is extravagant, amen? How many of you don't have a friend that gives you $60,000 birthday presents? You don't. You're like, I would like to know that person. That would be amazing, yes. This is a very lavish, very extravagant, very passionate, very generous gift. Let me read this to you from Matthew's gospel. It's a little insight. Matthew 26, 12 through 13, the Lord Jesus says this, and pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. When you would prepare a body for burial, you would use something like this so that even as they had the funeral and there was days of grieving process, the body would still be honored with this kind of lovely fragrance. Jesus says, truly I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Jesus honors her. In the storyline, Jesus is days away from the cross. He is going to substitute himself to 
bring about the sovereign plan of God for the forgiveness of sins. Jesus is going to be arrested. He is going to be beaten beyond recognition. Isaiah says that he would be marred beyond human likeness. That he would be crucified between two thieves in the most sensitive nerve centers in the human body, the hands and the feet. And I, I don't want to be guilty of over-speculation, but as Jesus is hanging on the cross and crucifixion was painfully slow death by asphyxiation, you had a troublesome time to get air into your lungs and so you would die very slowly and painfully. What is it that he is likely smelling with his final breaths as he dies to forgive sin? The generous, lavish, passionate, gift of Mary. She loves me. I love her. People love me. I love them. They have got themselves into a circumstance of death that they cannot deliver themselves from. And as I die for them, I reminded of love for me. Mary's amazing. Mary's amazing. Because worshipers are amazing. Do you love Jesus? She's generous as a giver. She's passionate as a worshiper. She's an extraordinary model for worship. Some people hate Jesus. Some people love Jesus. Some people use Jesus. But, you know, that's not going to be good. Who? Judas Iscariot. He shows up into the storyline, the narrative. John 12, 4 through 8. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him. Now, when this event is transpiring, Judas is not yet revealed. They don't know that he's a double agent, that he's running a shadow government, undermining the ministry of Jesus, working with Roman governmental officials and crooked religious leaders. After everything plays itself out, John, who was an eyewitness, is reflecting back and saying, we didn't know what Judas was doing in that moment, but here's the historical record. He was about to betray him. He said, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor. Is Judas, the disciple of Jesus, rebuking Mary, the worshiper of Jesus? Yes, and he's doing it publicly. If he had a concern, he could have pulled her aside and said, uh, Mary, 60 grand, really? Or he could have at least brought it to Jesus. Jesus, it feels a little lavish to me, but you make the decision and call. Instead, he publicly rebukes Mary for her generosity in the presence of Jesus. We all need to guard our heart and make sure that we don't just have disdain for Judas, but that we understand that if we are selfish, self-entitled, self-indulgent, we can find ourselves in the same circumstance. 
Here was his ultimate problem. He said this, not because he cared about the poor. Should God's people care for the poor? Yes. The Bible's clear about this. But because he was a a thief, he'd already agreed to betray Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. He He put a price on Jesus' head. Not only that, having charge of the money bag. So he's the bookkeeper, he's the accountant, he's the CFO. He used to help himself to whatever was put into it. So people would give to Jesus' ministry. Judas would say, well, let me do the accounting and uh, thank you very much. He's been stealing from Jesus for three years and at this point, nobody knows it. Jesus said, leave her alone. He vindicated and validated Mary. He rebukes Judas so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you will always have with you, but you do not always have me. What Jesus is saying is, I am going to the cross. This is a window of opportunity that as a worshiper, she is moved by the Holy Spirit to be generous. And this is an unusual circumstance, which is absolutely appropriate for her generous gift. Now, this is the first time that Judas speaks. And what he talks about is money. Not because he wants to be a good steward of it, but because he wants her to give the money to the account so that he can steal the money from the account. But he looks very pious and religious, doesn't he? He's gonna open himself up to Satan as the story works itself out. A Couple of things. Number one, uh, beware of people who are covert. I say this on occasion. At this point, no one knows, other than Jesus, no one knows who Judas really is or what he's really been doing. For three years, he's been with Jesus. If you look at him, you'd say, he's he's a great guy. Jesus picked 12 guys. And he taught them and he loved them and he fed them and he traveled with them. And Judas was one of his guys. Oh, he must be a great guy. No, he's covert. Let me ask you this. Mary, is she covert or overt? She's really overt. Where's Mary? She's at Jesus' feet crying again. You can tell exactly what she's thinking and what she's feeling by what she's doing. Judas is very covert. Covert people, they're sneaky, they're dishonest. They need to get caught because they don't come clean. Judas is very covert. He's very covert. Beware of people who are covert. And if you're a covert person, repent of being covert and be overt. Be honest and get help to change who you are. Don't be covert and crooked and hide who you are. Another point on Judas Iscariot. Beware of people who worship wealth. We don't worship wealth, we worship God with our wealth. Mary worships Jesus with her wealth. Judas worships wealth. Um, the Bible says that the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Money is neutral. It's the love of money that's a problem. And there are two kinds of people when it comes to money. There are people who love money and use people. And there are people who use money to love people. Mary is someone who uses money to love Jesus. Judas is trying to use Mary because he loves money. Amen? 
the AC has not been working today, but it just had a very crisp chill that hit the air here at the Trinity Church. Because see, what happens is every time the preacher talks about money, people say, uh, don't talk about my money. And the money says, in God we trust. And it should say, in this God we trust. That sometimes money is the greatest indicator of the heart. Okay? And Mary is generous and Judas pretends to be concerned for others, but he's only concerned for himself. Um, how about this one? Uh, beware of those who are self-indulgent. Mary is very generous. Judas is very self-indulgent. More for me, more for me, more for me. He's always taking, he's not giving. He's not giving. Beware of those who parade piety. Judas sounds very, very, very godly. What about the poor? What about, we could have made 120,000 sandwiches. This is very excessive. All right, it sounds like he's running for office, right? Telling other people what to do with their money. Right? Beware of those who parade their piety. And the last one, when it comes to Judas, Beware of those who do not understand godly generosity. Mary is generous. He rebukes her for being generous. She's passionate. She's passionate with her words. She's passionate with her works. She's passionate with her worship. She's passionate with her wealth. And he rebukes her. He doesn't understand godly generosity. So let me unpack this. I've said this a few times. I repeat myself because I'm old and I have limited material. So if you've heard this, I apologize. Okay, but... In our culture, we tend to think in two categories, poor and rich, okay? And what we try to do is we try to sort of idolize one and demonize the other. And even in Christianity, those who hold to something that I'll call poverty theology would say, God loves the poor and he hates the rich and poor people are close to God and rich people are not. And then there's this counterbalance called prosperity theology. It says, no, God loves rich people and he blessed them. That's why they're rich. And rich people are closer to God than poor people. And so there's this war in the culture between the rich and the poor that works itself out in the church between the rich and the poor. And I want you to think biblically and not just economically, the Bible actually gives four categories, not two. There are godly rich and ungodly rich. There are godly poor and ungodly poor. So let's field test my thesis. Is Mary rich? Yes. I mean, in that day, if you can just give a gift of a year's wages, you are doing really, how many of you right now could not give a year's wages today? I mean, that's a, that, I mean, this, she has enough disposable income that she can give away in a moment, unplanned, a year's wages. She's rich. Is she godly? Say yes. Good answer. Okay. Now, Judas, is he rich? Yeah. Is he godly? No. In this story, is Jesus poor? Yes. And Judas made sure he was really poor. Is Jesus godly? He's God. So yes. Okay. And are there some people though that they're poor, but they're poor because they're ungodly. They won't work. They chase get rich quick schemes. Uh, they blow their money on foolishness. Yes. 
So here's my point as your pastor. I don't care if you're rich or poor. I would ask you to just consider whether you're godly or ungodly. Okay? Because some of you are godly rich, and I'm, I hate to prophesy doom, but you may end up poor. Some of you are poor and you may end up rich. Your economic situation can change, but your worship of God, your relationship with God, your stewardship of the things that come from God needs to remain godly, okay? So as we look at the story, we see two rich people. One is godly, one is ungodly. One is giving to Jesus and the other wants to steal from Jesus. So the issue cannot be rich and poor. It has to be godly and ungodly. Some people hate Jesus. Some people love Jesus. Some people use Jesus. And then let me say this in closing, the final section. Your testimony will be tested. Your testimony as a believer is your story of God's work in your life. This is different than a biography. Our culture has biographies, and that is, here's what they did to slay their giants, to conquer their dragons, to climb their mountains, to overcome their adversity, right? A testimony is, here's what God did for me. A biography is what I do for me. A testimony is what God does for me. For the believer, our life is to be a testimony. Here's when God showed up. Here's what God did. God saved me, God forgave me, God changed me, God healed me, God delivered me. To God be the glory and the joy be to me. Amen, that's a testimony. And your testimony is incredibly powerful because as people approach you and they ask, is Jesus real, is the Bible true? Part of what we say is, let me tell you what he's done in my life, amen? And let me say this, people are amazing and everyone's testimony is incredible. One of my favorite parts of this job meeting people who know Jesus and just asking, what's your testimony? And as people tell their testimony, it's fascinating, it's amazing to see God show up and do amazing things in people's lives. It's incredible, it's incredible. And you need to know that there's power in your testimony. That's why it says in Revelation, when persecution comes against God's people that they overcame by the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony. As you tell the story of what God has done in your life, it encourages others to fall in love with Jesus. Amen? Let me just say this to you, and then we'll jump into Lazarus' testimony. Your testimony is a good testimony. It's the testimony that God has given you. And don't covet somebody else's testimony. And I say this all the time, right? Like, if you have an exciting test, how many of you have an exciting testimony? Like, there's drugs, somebody got shot, um, there was a car chase right? Okay, that's your testimony. That, how many of you have a boring testimony? You're like, I was homeschooled. I never got to go on a car chase. We had a big van. It wouldn't even go fast, you know, and then <laughs> closest we ever got to shooting someone was my brother one time said a potty word. That was it. I mean, you're, you got a boring testimony. You're like, I love Jesus and my parents love Jesus. And my, grandkid, my grandparents love Jesus. And then I went to Christian school and I love Jesus. I got an old worn out Bible, boring testimony. How many of you parents are praying that your children have a boring testimony, amen? Because a boring testimony is a good testimony, right? Like if, 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 if I bring a guy up and he's like, I killed my dad and then I met Jesus, I'd be like, hey kids, cover your ears. That's, that's I want that homeschool testimony, the kid who loved Jesus and follow in his footsteps. Okay, now here's the point. 
whatever God has done in your life, wherever he's met you and forgiven you and changed you and delivered you, that's your testimony and be proud of it. Be proud of God's work in your life and tell your testimony. Well, bring the story full circle. Who are they having the party for? Lazarus. His testimony, pretty cool, right? I could see a few books, a few reality television shows. I could see a sequel. I could see t-shirts. I could see, you know, zombie apocalypse, resurrection horror film video game. I mean, this could be a whole product line, right? He stinketh clothing wear. I mean, it could be a whole thing. It could be a whole thing. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but to see Lazarus who was raised from the dead. If you live in a small town where nothing ever happens, you're like, Jesus is here and the dead guy. Well, that's what we're doing for sure. That's what we're doing. We're taking the day off. I wanna go smell the dead guy and see what Jesus is like, all right? So the chief priests, the religious leaders put plans to put Lazarus to death. Can you imagine Lazarus like, again? Like, uh, again, like, what, what, you know what? What, 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 really? All right. Jesus' resurrection is like a Groupon, right? I get another one. Like, I mean, I, this is awkward. He's dead. He's alive. Let's kill him. Because on account of him, his what? His testimony. Many of the Jewish people were believing in Jesus. As you tell your testimony, people are gonna to come to believe in Jesus. How many of you, you met Jesus because somebody shared their testimony with you? You're like, he forgave you? Yeah, and he'll forgive you? Well, then I'm in. I heard this from a gal here recently at church. She said, I've done horrible things in my life and I met somebody who did horrible things in their life and, she, and this woman told me that Jesus died for all her sins and she was forgiven and that burden was lifted. And she said, I told this woman, if somebody's forgiven sins, I wanna join that team. She said, so I gave all my sin to Jesus. She said, he forgave me too, it totally works. She said, now I'm telling everybody that they need to get their sins forgiven because it really works. That's a testimony, okay? Lazarus is telling everybody, Jesus said he was God. He said that he forgives sin. He said that he conquers death and he brought me back from death. You can trust this guy. They're like, well, then we're on team Jesus. And the religious leaders decide that's a problem because People are believing in Jesus. Let me say this, for every action, there is a reaction. Uh, for every testimony, there is a test of that testimony. How many of you right now, you're like, I don't talk about Jesus at work. I don't. How many of you are like, I got saved, told my family, <whistles> mushroom cloud over Thanksgiving. Not gonna touch that again. That was awkward. There will be a test of your testimony. Why are they opposing Lazarus's testimony? Is he lying? saying I was dead. Jesus said he was God, said he was the resurrection and the life, said that he would forgive sin and conquer death. And he did that for me. And here's Jesus, everybody. Here's Jesus. He's pointing to Jesus. Here's how it says it in uh, Romans 1.18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Here's Lazarus. He's telling the truth. The religious leaders show up and say, we need to suppress the truth. There is always a war against the truth because the truth, Jesus already told us in John's gospel, the truth sets people free. So there's always a war against the truth. 
But if you side with the truth and tell your testimony, you'll get to see people set free. They want to kill Lazarus, not because he's lying, but because the truth that he's telling is the most powerful truth in the world. And it sets people free. It alters destinies. It changes legacies. It saves families. It, it, it absolutely is the most powerful force in the world. That is the truth about Jesus Christ. Jesus paid a price to be with you. You will need to pay some kind of price to continue with him. That's the lesson of Lazarus. Lazarus keeps telling his story and people keep meeting Jesus. I'm gonna pray for you in just a moment. My question for you would be, do you hate Jesus? If so, God wants to change your heart today. Do you love Jesus? God wants to encourage your heart today. Are you using Jesus? God wants to replace your heart today. And we're gonna worship. Okay? Okay? So some of you know exactly how to get passionate. Some of you, this is your beginning. Right? Sing, emotional engagement, processing. It's why we put singing after the sermon so that you have a chance to passionately respond to the Lord Jesus personally. We're also gonna partake of communion, remembering Jesus' broken body and shed blood in our place for our sins as our substitute. The good captain is gonna get us all to our eternal shore, amen? And let me say this, as you get out of your seat, you are testifying that you believe that Jesus got out of his grave. And as you come forward to partake of communion, you are testifying publicly, this is part of your testimony, that you believe that Jesus died for the forgiveness of sins and Jesus died for the forgiveness of your sins. It's part of your testimony. Father God, as we come to worship now, I thank you for the truth of the Lord Jesus. And Lord Jesus, I thank you for the faithful record and testimony of John. And Lord God, John is the one who loves you and Mary is one who loves you. And I pray for all of the dear people that are gathered with us here and gathered online, that we would have hearts that love Jesus, that we'd become increasingly passionate toward Jesus, that we'd be worshipers of Jesus, that we would be generous toward Jesus, that like Mary, we would be at the feet of Jesus. Like Martha, we would serve others in the name of Jesus. Like Lazarus, we would tell our testimony and point others to Jesus. I pray for encouragement on these dear people here today, Lord God, and I pray that the word of God would be a word to them. Holy Spirit, please take something specific from the scriptures today and imprint it on their soul so that they can experience the love of Jesus in whose name we pray. Amen. If you live in or are visiting the greater Phoenix Valley, please join us at the Trinity Church in Scottsdale, Arizona. You can also watch Pastor Mark live on Sundays, YouTube, Facebook, the app, or at markdriscoll.org. And as Pastor Mark always says, it's all about Jesus.